0: Hi, I'm Chris McKendry and welcome to Equal Play, 50 years of equal pay in tennis presented by JP Morgan. When we think of people who make a mark on history, talent and perseverance are certainly important, but more often than not, people whose names end up in the history books know how to seize opportunity. Chris Everett did that at the 1971 U.S. Open. The year after the original nine established their own circuit, at only 16 years old, Chris burst onto the scene, making it all the way to the semifinals, where she lost to Billie Jean King. Even though she was dealt a loss, she never looked back. Chris quickly became one of tennis's stars, just as the women's game was reaching new heights, too. Over the span of her career, Chris has claimed 18 Grand Slam singles titles, dominated on clay courts where she won an astounding 125 consecutive matches. Known for her calm demeanor on the court, Chris not only left a mark as a player, but continues to shape the sport as a respected analyst and commentator. Beyond her accomplishments on the tennis court, she served as president of the Women's Tennis Association, She opened a tennis academy, and most importantly, she has been an inspirational figure for countless women worldwide. As we celebrate 50 years of equal pay at the U.S. Open, it's time to hear from my friend Chrissy, someone who stood on the shoulders of the original nine and took the game mainstream. Our wide-ranging conversation covers Chrissy's trailblazing tennis career and the sports evolution. Let's get into it. The original nine and your debut, let's go back to 1971, the U.S. Open as a teenager. Billie Jean King has told me back during Coco Golf Mania, Coco Mania in 19, that she had nothing on you when you debuted at Forest Hills. What were your memories of that?
1: It was a Cinderella story. You know, it was, it didn't start out that way. I mean, um, I got a wild card into the US Open because I had won the 18 nationals. So I didn't have a professional ranking. And the first day I remember my mom and I went to Forest Hills and a rental car and we didn't know where to park. And then once we parked, you know, we didn't know where to get in and we went to like three different places to get in and they said, no, it's, this isn't the right entrance. So it wasn't a good beginning. I had no idea what was gonna happen <laughs> the next two weeks. But, um, you know, it was just, uh, my first round was against Etta Budding, number one in Germany and on grass and center court. And I beat her six love, six love. (laughs) And I was like, this is kind of easy. These girls aren't as good as I thought they were. (laughs) Six love, six love for the number one woman in Germany. I think it was around 16, I played Marianne Eisel, and that was the big match. That sort of catapulted my career. And then I won the match. And then all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, you know, front page on the New York Times. And all of a sudden, I reached the semifinals. And, you know, my life had already changed, win or lose. And I played Billie Jean King. And I remember walking down Forest Hills in order to get from the locker room to the court. You had to walk along a path for about 10 minutes. And people it was roped off so people could touch you and shake your hand and give you a high five. And... I remember walking in and Billie Jean said to me, you're riding on the crest of a wave, enjoy it. And I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. I, had no I never heard that comment before that phrase. So um, I had to go ask somebody what it meant later on. And then I, then I got it, but she, you know, and I remember playing the match with her and, and she, you know, for all I heard, about her and her game on grass it was certain volley it was powerful it was you know she hit the ball hard and but she just gave me a lot of junk that match just jumped up because <laughs> she was trying to disturb my rhythm which she did very successfully and she won six two six three and i mean chris all i can say is that it was a fairy tale it was a dream come true and you know after that life magazine time magazine everybody came to my school and you know, things, my life changed. My life changed.
0: How did Billie Jean um, influence, you know, some of your choices? And even for her to tell you to enjoy that moment, sounds like she was excited for you. Yes, I think
1: Billie Jean was thinking about the tour, was thinking about women's tennis, was thinking about the future, and was not at all threatened by me and the attention i was getting i mean because she was the pioneer she was the one trying to sell the sport so i think when she saw a young player come along and you know i was from america she saw that we'd get more crowds maybe the sponsorship would go up maybe we'd get more tv i think she was just thinking of the big picture rather than anything else and she was always 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 supportive of me in my career you know which i thought was wonderful. And she even put herself second to her career. I mean, she was like going to sponsorship meetings and going to tournament meetings and trying to sell the sport of women's tennis. And then she would go work all day with these companies. And then she would play a match at night and not play her best and be exhausted. But in her mind, that was her role. And that was what she was meant to do.
0: How did the other original nine members—I mean, by 1973, just two years after your breakout at Forest Hills, you were clearly the future, a champion, and already a force. How did they react?
1: I think the other ones weren't that—they didn't reach their hand out to me in the beginning. Let's put it that way. They were— again, threatened by me and threatened by, and, I, and and you know what, we laugh about it now, so I, I can honestly say it, but I mean, I wasn't welcome. I was like the first teenager that was sort of good enough to play in the pros, and I was beating most of them at that time. So they weren't taking to it, and they would, it was interesting, whenever I would play Billie Jean or Rosie, they would all sit in a box on the court and, you know, cheer for them really loudly and not really, you know, clap when I made a a good shot. And finally, I felt the unfriendliness and it didn't feel too good in the locker room, believe me, because it was very silent when I walked in. But finally, Billie Jean took them aside and said, listen, guys, she's good for the sport and she's going to put money in our pockets. And, you know, you, you, you better accept her and you feel happy that this sport will flourish because we will have her and more like her Will come along and, and grow the sport of tennis. And so then, after that talk, the attitude was a lot different and everybody was friendlier and it was great after that. But they needed to have a talking to those women. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Billy is the person to do yes, that.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> feminine, athletic, mentally tough. These adjectives are not mutually exclusive. And you personified Chrissy really being feminine and yet fierce. How did you feel about it in the moment?
1: Again, I was a teenager, you know, I mean, I right. ha- I like to wear ribbons in my hair and <laughs> I like to wear little eye shadow and I like to, you know, wear nail polish. And I was looking at the boys and I always wanted, I think my mom taught me that, you know, want, always wanted to be feminine. And then I, my dad was the one that got me involved in tennis because he was a tennis player. Coach tennis professional first, and then a tennis coach, and he taught all five of his kids how to play tennis. And I tell you what, you had to sweat, and you had to run, and you had to be muscular, and you had—I mean, it was a real change in the mindset of really the '60s in which I grew up. In. It was like women could be physically strong, and women could, you know, be athletic and and tough and mean on the court, and it was. Wow, it was such a transition. So I'm sure there were a few hiccups with me. I remember one time I said, no point is worth falling down for. (laughs) <laughs> and i think i slipped playing tracy austin on the center court of wimbledon and i was you know i slipped right on my ass and and i was like embarrassed you know and and i and it's like you know what that's part of the deal because i was trying to talk myself into it but you know and it, it, it was just you know women weren't athletes in those days in the 60s and 70s they there weren't sports for women and And women were supposed to be models and actresses and little girls were supposed to be seen and not heard. And all of a sudden, I'm placed in this sport that Billie Jean King is like a feminist. And, you know, I'd look on the TV and Gloria Steinem would be there and they they were having, you know, parades in New York City and demonstrations and burning bras. And it was really an era that I didn't quite understand at the time. I was too young. I was just, I was a very guarded and very sheltered young Catholic girl went to Catholic school and played tennis in in the juniors. And then all of a sudden I'm thrust into this sophisticated sort of aggressive lifestyle. And it took me a while to, to figure out what my place was.
0: And you think about it, 1973, as you're huge on the scene and it's Title IX, and you have these generations of young girls now who were going to have the opportunity to play any sport they want, any team sport they want. And there was something about you and what you represented. Looking back on it now, can you see how generations of moms and dads and their daughters, you know, look to you and say, oh, thank God you were out there showing my parents, you know, how cool this can be and how powerful this can be?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think when I look at Billie Jean, what she's done as far as equality, and I look at Martina, you know, what she's done, she's been so outspoken. She defected from Czechoslovakia. She came out gay when that wasn't a popular thing to be. And, you know, I look at all of the top players and their contributions, and I think when I look at myself, I encouraged young girls and teenagers to take up the sport of tennis and also i think that i made it okay that you can still be feminine and you can still look nice out there be pretty if you wanted to be it wouldn't affect you you know but it was such a different thing to, again to go out and sweat on tv and to to fall down and to you know go into the gym and start doing push-ups and bicep curls and it was so no. It was not the 60s at all. Right. But in the early 70s, when I was a teenager, I, that's what I had to do. I'm so glad I came up when I did. Let's put it that way, because it was the most interesting, I think, time in women's tennis. Because Billie Jean and the original nine were building a tour for hundreds and thousands of women to earn a living and to try to get that equality. And then I came along as a teenager and I think brought a whole new generation into the game. And then Martina made it more global. And then Steffi and, and and Monica had another great rivalry. And then, of course, you have Serena who dominated tennis and most people think is the greatest that ever lived. So we followed Billie Jean's lead. She was great leader. And I, I often, I'm so glad she was the leader in tennis because... If she was a golfer, maybe golf would have been the sport yeah. that was the number one women's sport. But tennis has been the number one women's sport
0: because of her. And you did follow her lead right to the presidency of the WTA. <laughs> <laughs> president of w- the <laughs> For 11 years. That's, that's a, a little footnote in your bio that we don't talk about enough. Chrissy, you were the WTA president for years. How? Because I'm a leader, Chris. And I'm a true
1: leader <laughs> and I am intelligent and I No, it was hysterical because Billie Jean was president for a few years. And then when I was number one in the world, uh, like at 1920, she came to me and she said, because I think she was thinking about retiring. She goes, you know, you're going to have to be the, the next president. And I said, president of what? And she said, you're going to have to be the WTA president. And I go, what? I don't know anything about anything. And she said, we'll teach you. But first, this year, you're going to be vice president. We'll organize it so that you're vice president, so you can observe me and see, you know, what the deal is and see how to run a meeting and how to do all that. So I was vice president, and I kind of observed, and I had no idea what they were talking about. They were crunching numbers and tournaments and talking about all the rules and equal prize money, and they were talking about things that, I mean, I had just barely graduated from high school. So... She just said, Chrissy, you have to be president. And, you know, if Billie Jean says you have to do something, then you have to do something.
0: (sighs) Why did she feel so
1: strongly that you had to do this? Because the press would listen to me. Her feeling was the press always listens to the number one player in the world. Mm -hmm. They're going to listen to you. They're not going to listen as much as Susie Smith if she's 50 in the world. So, I mean, to me, I was like the figurehead. Trust me, I didn't run. (laughs) I I wasn't running women's tennis. I mean, that was a joke. But I was the figurehead and I would run the meetings and I would talk to whoever, you know, Billy Jean and Rosie and, and whoever was CEO at the time, talk about the issues that we were going to talk about.
0: For you on a personal level, teenage sensation and all that followed as you were transcending sport and crossing over into entertainment and celebrity. What are some of the biggest pitfalls of teenage celebrity it's
1: a very difficult and challenging transition. The thing is, is that when you're a young player and you have sudden success, all of a sudden, all eyes are upon you. And in my case, or in anybody, Martina Hingis or Jennifer Capriati or Monica Sells, anybody at 15 or 16, who all of a sudden is pushed into the public eye, Before they have their personality, before they know who they really are, before they know right from wrong, you know, it's very, very tricky because the press give you an image right away. And in my case, it was little Miss Icicle, little Miss Unemotional, you know, I kept everything in and you start to live your image and that stifles you and that prevents growth. You don't have the freedom of being who you want to be when you're in the public eye and when you're on TV and you're in the press and, you know, people expect you to be a certain way. And if you're controversial, it's going to wreak havoc on your life and it's just going to be more complicated to navigate that plus trying to concentrate on your tennis. So, I mean, I tried to say the least amount of things that I could say (laughs) because I just wanted I wanted to hide sometimes, and I I wasn't comfortable with being in the limelight and having the press firing questions at you and having cameras at you, and I hadn't developed into a person yet. I hadn't developed my personality. I didn't know where my boundaries were, and that's the emotional part of it, but if you look at players also that have nothing, that are starting from nothing financially, and all of a sudden win a major and start winning tournaments, and all of a sudden they're millionaires, that is crushing as well because that is going from one extreme to the other and sometimes your values will change as a result
0: how much stress is involved in all of this in managing all of this as a kid does your is the youth part of it an advantage when you're young do you feel the stress You know, when you were keeping everything inside and trying not to give the media anything to run with and trying to keep your emotions in check on the court. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of told it that take.
1: Well, I think in the beginning, I mean, the reason why I did so well when I was like 16, 17, 18 was because I wasn't getting that much publicity. And when I would play the women, I had nothing to lose. I felt like I would go out there and just play my game, and I knew I had time on my side if I didn't win the match, and I knew that they were they were so nervous playing me because I was that young. I was the, really the first teenager that came along that they had to play. These women were 25, 30 years old, so there's no pressure there whatsoever, but then once you start to achieve some success, there are more expectations and more eyes on you, and you're on TV more, and the press are on you, and yeah, you know, the press, it's like you get sensitive to the press. You know, Chrissy, you know, she didn't play a good match or her first serve is very weak. You know, she doesn't move very well. I mean, anything they say is like the whole world reads this. And it, and it's with your young, I think you're very sensitive about everything. Even if your friend says something, you're sensitive. So if the whole world is reading this, how are you going to feel? So it's difficult and it's definitely challenging. You have to have a good support system around you. And I had great parents. Mm-hmm. I had you know really good parents who who were very humble people. And you know when I came home after winning Wimbledon, I'd still have to empty the dishwasher and fold the wash, and clean up my room. And you know there is no divas living in that house. Though. <laughs> so they, I think, for a large extent, they kept me down to earth, and also having four brothers and sisters who, you know, I saw were going to college and playing on their college team and struggling maybe with their studies or struggling to find a job. And, you know, it's like, gosh, I kind of have it easy here.
0: <laughs> um, you know, for, for all the, the, the talk of, you know, what it took and what it took to succeed and It had to be a heck of a lot of fun though, Chrissy, as you're establishing the tour, whether it was the camaraderie with the women or come on, this was the 1970s and tennis in the 1970s with, you know, Borg and company, you guys walked around like rock stars. (laughs) How much fun was it?
1: It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, You know, we had a good, we had a great group of women and, and men also and you know, you mentioned Bjorn Borg. There's never been anybody like him. He was a rock star, and he had, like, six guards around him every time he was ushered from court to court. And Jimmy Connors and, you know, Ili Nastasi, And then you had, you know, you had the greats of John Newcombe and Rod Laver, and then you had Billy Jean and Rosie and Yvonne Goulagong. I mean, you had some really interesting stories and interesting players and because it was new it was fresh the press were were really optimistic and very positive most of the time and we had a little gang of like eight press people follow us around the world I mean it's so unlike mm-hmm. it is now with, with social media and I remember we had the Frank DeFords and the Sally Jenkins I can't name all of them but we had some very very special sports Illustrated, curry Kirkpatrick, patrick people who you know we would rub shoulders with and talk every day to it was like how do you think you played you know and and we had personal relationships with the with the press mm-hmm. and personal yeah. relationships with the tournament directors and the sponsors because it was it was smaller and it was more intimate billy jean and i martina and, and the gang we'd get to the finals and we all traveled together to the next city and we'd practice together because that was when there weren't coaches. So we'd practice with each other. So there was more intimacy, more camaraderie and definitely less pressure than there is today. I can, when I look at these players, I have tremendous admiration and I can understand the whole mental health issue where it's like, okay, it's a bit too much. I've got I've to take time off. It's a bit too much. I would probably do that like every three years if I was playing now. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I mean, there's so much, um, gosh, so much pressure and, and the money, the, not only the prize money, but the endorsements and the appearances and the demands on a player. And it's, it's so different now. But in our day, I think that's probably, you know, we had it easier. We had it easier.
0: You had it easier and and harder. I mean, you were trying to establish a tour. You know, your, your next year's tour stops weren't always guaranteed, you know, like they are nowadays. And I want you to speak to that because we're such a society now, we're obsessed with titles and trophies and championships. And, you know, we're measuring who's the greatest player right now by number of grand slams. And yet in your case, in your era, not everybody played every Grand Slam every year, and it wasn't the priority establishing a tour was.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, nowadays, it's only about numbers. It's all, only about Grand Slam majors, and everybody is so consumed with so-and-so has 24 and so-and-so has 22. And and in our day, I think it was more about winning titles on the virginia slim circuit i won nine tournaments this year and even being number one or number two was more important than than the majors and the majors to their credit have built themselves up into you know building bigger stadiums and building themselves up to deserve all the accolades that they are getting but in our day it was all about building the Virginia Slims tour and first of all, getting a sponsor, which was Philip Morris. And then Virginia Slims building the tour, getting the cities, getting the tournament directors, getting the money and, you know, being having the draws big enough so that the women could, could all play because all the women played every tournament. So yeah. One year, I think Martina won 11 tournaments and that was like, and Steffi won twelve tournaments, and that and that's like a banner year. That's a banner year. You would we would talk about that more than, and she also won two grand majors. You know, we would talk more about how many tournaments you won, and that was the difference in the mindset, and the philosophy of then and now. I just I feel like a lot of the players, they look at these tournaments, and yes, they want to win them, but they're more like lead ups to mm-hmm. majors or warm up tournaments or you know, they, they're just thinking about majors and their endorsements. There are more clauses that say, how are you doing majors as well? I think it's, I think in our day, it was, it was more the number of tournaments you won head to head. And I think, you know, and I'm not saying this because I have the highest percentage win loss, but I think that you have to take that into consideration as well. A person can win 21 grand slams, but, have a lot of losses in their career as well. And I think that ratio to me is very important.
0: Yeah. So your seven time year end number one is really something to hang your hat on because that was seven times over you. You know, you finished this season number one. Um, and, and, and that just counts for so much more. But I, I know to what you're saying, I always think that as we're leading into the U.S. Open and we pay such close attention to the tournaments in Canada and then Cincinnati, but as I watch Canada, sometimes if someone loses early, I always think to myself, oh, Cincinnati's probably happy because now they'll definitely play Cincinnati. <laughs> because, yeah. you, know, you know, if you get to the final weekend in Canada, chances are those players are going to skip Cincinnati, to your point. Like, their, their warm-up is done. Their tune-up is done for the U.S. Open, and they're going to go right to New York. So yeah. it has certainly changed, yeah.
1: The tournaments all year around have gotten bigger and better, and even we're, we've joined with the men mm-hmm. in many of them to make them really great, great tournaments with a lot of fans coming. But at the end of the day, I think the majors are still, they have more eyeballs on them. More people are watching it on TV. There's more press at the majors. And the majors are the tournaments that can change your life. It's winning the majors that is going to put you down in history. You're going to be in the history books, you know, and you're yeah. always going to have that victory Grand Slam champion. You're always going to have that title. And it's like Olympics. You win in Olympics, you know, right. it, it's the right. same t- sort of title and that's where you're going to get the endorsements and you're going to you know obviously make more money and so and and you're just going to be larger in stature
0: you mentioned the the tournaments and the purses and um you know how these tournaments are just getting bigger and and better and as we you know sit here and talk about equal play and equal pay on these series of conversations that I'm having are you surprised Or maybe surprised. I don't even want to feed you a word. Just what are your thoughts that, you know, the women players are still fighting for equal pay and it's 2023? Well, what is it in the workforce? Yeah, same thing. (laughs) I mean, it's still, you know, women are still out there fighting, you know. I mean, yeah. And, um, you know, like the WTA has really pushed it. And finally, you know, they're saying, look, if you're going to have these players, On the court, the same court, you know, these combined tournaments, these combined 500 events like the one in D.C., you now have a deadline. You have to have equal prize money. But, you know, you sit there and go, geez, 50 years after the U.S. Open, we're still having these conversations. I
1: just think it's just taken a long time for people to get used to the fact that there are not specific roles for women and specific roles for men like there always has been. Now a woman can have muscles. Now a woman can be strong in the boardroom. Now, you know, a woman can have children and still compete. And the rules have changed and society has changed and it's just taken a little longer, but I still think we're doing great. We have equal prize money in majors and then we have equal prize money in, (laughs) as you said, the combined events. I think there's still that little stigma of, Yeah, but the men play three out of five. You know, yeah, but the men, you know, they play five-hour matches and women sometimes play two to three-hour matches. I think there's still a little stigma associated with that, but I think we're doing well.
0: I think we're doing okay. I like to say, I I believe, I mean, we always want change to happen faster and faster, (laughs) but... I think when it comes to to women, it's it's a generation. You know, we have it better than the generation before mm-hmm. us. Like it it takes a generation. We are still playing, you know, we're playing catch up. I see that in my industry, but then again, I I never saw anybody my age, fifty five, a woman working on TV in sports. <laughs> exactly. So you know, I thought I'd be kicked to the curb when I was thirty, yeah. and you know, they're still putting me out there. So you know, the people coming after us can keep playing. And we see that with players and we see it with, you know, with the moms coming back on tour. I mean, y- you've talked about it. You could even imagine doing no. that. I mean, it wasn't even, it would be crazy talk, right? The idea of, oh, I'm going to just take a couple years off in my thirties and I'll come back after I have a child or two, you know? So that's impressive.
1: I, I think that the, the physical training is a lot different now than it was 40 years ago. Also, like when we were playing, you yeah. know, I mean, we were not, training like olympic athletes and nowadays you have to be a great athlete to be a great tennis player and i really think in my day i was a i I was a great tennis player but i wasn't necessarily a great athlete and uh, meaning i could go to another sport and be great and i think a lot of these tennis players nowadays they're such great athletes that they could be great in, in a variety of sports. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so there's yeah. difference in the physicalities and the science and, you know, and, and, and research and, and information that we have now, as we're seeing players are playing to 40 years old. So, and, yeah. and you talked about yourself, you know, having a great job in your fifties, uh, but I tell you what, I think we still need leaders in this generation and Billie Jean was one thing. And I think Marti and I kind of carried that torch a little bit, but I think we still need the leaders in this era, you know, and the the top players that the press will listen to. We still need some of these women that are willing to be a little controversial and to stick their neck out and to even push even further for equal prize money and equal opportunity. We still need that leadership so that the, public and people don't forget that we're still working towards this goal. It hasn't stopped here.
0: It's time for my two cents, a segment sponsored by JP Morgan at the end of every show. I'm asking my guests, Chrissy to reflect on the question and ask for words of wisdom. So Chrissy, what do you recommend to women who are just joining the professional circuit?
1: (laughs) Do we have an hour? We have another hour. Obviously they have to be good. (laughs) Obviously, they've had success before, whether it's in junior tennis or college tennis. So it's a continuation of your journey. And you have to continue to train and continue to work hard. You find a good coach, get a good trainer who who knows what they're talking about. Try to get into the best shape possible. Try to watch matches and still learn from other players. Kind of do your homework. And just want to continue to improve and work on your weaknesses and work on your strengths and and maybe that should be the priority rather than winning or losing in the beginning.
0: If you look back over your your career, is there anything you would have done differently?
1: Well, probably developed an all court game earlier on in my career because at the end of my career, I lost to Martina 13 times in a row. Two and a half years I lost to her. And everybody kept telling me, go to the net, take the net away from her, go in on her back end. Da, da, da. And I was stubborn and I didn't. And the 14th match that I did, I beat her. And <laughs> so I think that I would have tried to develop um, more of an all-court game. Because when I was number one, I just tried I worked on my we- on my strengths more than my weaknesses because I wanted to just to just to kind of defend myself, to, to stay with my strengths. And, um, I would have worked more on coming into the net, you know, approach shots, volleys, just to be more of an all court player. But it's kind of tough when you're number one in the world and you're a baseliner and that's what got you to number one. And that's what keeps you at number one. It's like, you're afraid to try anything different and be a little, you know, courageous, but, um, So that's what I would have done. I think just worked on my weaknesses a little bit more. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's been (laughs) lovely
0: talking with you. (laughs) I hope to see you soon.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Good questions.
0: Thank you so much to Chris Everett for joining me. Next episode, we're joined by Olympic gold medalist, Lori Hernandez, who talks about the pressure of being an elite athlete and her mission to open up a conversation about mental health. Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, is presented by J.P. Morgan. It's a production of Neon Hum Media and the United States Tennis Association. And it's hosted by me, Chris McKendry. The series producers are Mia Warren and Rob Dozier. Executive producers, Shara Morris and Matt Guerra. Production management help from Samantha Allison and Taylor Sniffen. Our theme song was composed by Asha Ivanovich. Sam Bear is our engineer. Special thanks to Tara Bell and Rashina Warren.